Welcome back to When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a podcast about censorship and the arts. My name is Todd Sullivan. Joining me this week is Dave Colmine. Yo. And today we're talking about Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Dave, it's good to have you back. Uh, yeah, good to be here, Todd. Uh, back not just uh, after having done um, Of Mice and Men, but back after having an aborted attempt to record this episode last week. Yeah, if I lack enthusiasm, it's because it's the second time we've had to do this. I, you know, so not ideal. There was... Uh, uh, we we did this episode already last week. We had a, it was a really good episode, and and somewhere along the way, I lost my audio, and so I briefly considered just releasing Dave's half. Uh, so it was like listening to like half of a phone call, and uh, maybe you know listeners have to decipher what was being said at the other half of the half, the, half of the phone call. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to do uh, another crack at this. Uh, it, it, it might sound in places a little more formulaic because we're going to talk about things we've already talked about. It won't be quite as spontaneous, but, uh, but we're going to give it a try. Um, the reason we're talking about Mouse, um, which uh, was a nonfiction comic book that was serialized from 1980 to 1991, is because it was very recently um, removed from the McKinn County Schools in East Tennessee. Uh, on January 10th, 2022, the Board of Trustees there agreed in a 10-0 to zero decision to remove Mouse from the curriculum over concerns uh, about its use in the 8th grade English language and arts classes. Uh, Mouse is an award-winning graphic novel. It won uh, a Pulitzer Prize in 1992, and it is so far the only graphic novel to ever uh, win a Pulitzer Prize. And it tells the story of uh, Art Spiegelman's father and his experiences in the war as told to Spiegelman by his father, as well as it sort of tells the story of, of Spiegelman and his father's relationship over the course of learning about um, the history of his family in order to write this comic book. Yeah, spelled M-A-U-S, mouse. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think that's the German spelling is is why he went that route with it. Oh, okay. I believe that. I don't know, but I believe that. And again, one of the things he, he does in this comic is, um, and again, this is why it's called Mouse, is that the Jews are depicted as mice, the Germans are depicted as cats, and then there's a whole... There's a whole... Uh, swath of other, you know, races and peoples, like the Poles are shown as pigs. Um, pigs. Um, oh, I've got it here. Americans as dogs, English as fish, the French as frogs, and the Swedish as deer. So um, th there's a really easy way to, to draw the distinction between which race is which, uh, who is who in this uh, in this story of cultures during war, um, which he has been criticized in the past for uh, drawing the same kind of racial lines by using these different animals, you know, basically saying that he's doing the same thing that Hitler did by drawing lines between, like, 
you know, the German people, the Aryans, and the Jewish people that he saw as being, you know, lesser. Um, but I think in this case, it's just a, an easy way of very quickly identifying who's who in a story that is very much about, you know, you know, Americans are definitely Americans in the story of World War II, and and the Germans and the Jews are definitely two very different people in this story, and it's an efficient way to sort of get at those those differences. Agreed. I mean, feels a little racist, but uh, the flip side it is, is a little bit. Yeah, there are scenes where he is in Poland and trying to pass as a Pole, and in those scenes wears a pig mask, and so it's a very easy way to make that distinction uh, and to mm. show it in a graphical style. So I can also respect and understand why it was used the way it was used. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get to. Uh to what the book is actually about. Uh, you flip you flip past the opening uh, cover, and uh, there's a single page with the quote on it. Uh, the Jews are undoubtedly a race, but they are not human. Adolf Hitler. And so for me, because a lot of those lines, you don't see all the different races in the first half of the book, which is what we're discussing today, the first half of this graphic novel. And so... Initially, it's not very obvious that it's racial lines. That's what the different depictions are. At first, the Poles in the book, the the Polish in the book are doctors. So it's the doctors that are the pigs. And I didn't... I thought, I'm sorry, I think it's police that they are. Initially police, yes, right. So then pigs as police makes a lot of sense. And then they're always like authoritarian characters, like authority characters. So then I just... I don't know, I didn't initially see it as the racial lines that it is. And then having mm-hmm. the book open on that phrasing, the Jews are undoubtedly a race, but they are not human, and seeing them depicted as mice, just, I don't know, it's like, helps set the tone, you know, of what Adolf mm-hmm. Hitler was saying. Like, there is a distinction, mm-hmm. right? And so, I, Yeah, and if you yeah. think about, like, mice, you know, and maybe to a greater extent rats, you have these these creatures that are often thought of as as vermin. And I imagine, in fact, I, I think there were times that Hitler compared um, Jews to vermin and to rats. Um, I imagine mouse is a, you know, maybe just a softer, you know, better title than, you know, rat would have been. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a graphic novel. Let's talk about that art style. Um, initially, I felt the art style to be a little ugly and primitive. Um, there's definitely a choice being made there. It's a black and white style, and there's no, there isn't a lot of gradients or shading. Uh, instead, the art style is that uh, it's it's like it's all ink drawings, and they would use a thatch, like a cross thatch, mm-hmm. to create shading. And the cross thatch would get thicker and thicker to the point of being pure blackness as it goes into the background and shadows of a scene. So there's really no gradients. There's no pencil use here. And uh, mm-hmm. as it went, uh, I stopped thinking about the art as I was absolutely captured by Art Spiegelman's father, Vladik, who the story centers around. Yeah, um, I guess the first the first little chunk of story we get is more of a, a prologue than anything else. Um, in this prologue, Art is uh, is a child. He's playing with his friends. Uh, they're skating. They're roller skating. And uh, one of his friends is like, you know, last one to wherever is a rotten egg. Um, Spiegelman's skate breaks. He falls down, and his friends all sort of laugh at him as they roll away, calling him a rotten egg crying he he visits his father who's doing some some woodworking his father says like you know hold on to this piece of wood while i cut it 
And I and uh, I just love the use sorry. of language and the way it like really communicates who the father character is. And like I just am so drawn into the the speech style tells so much about like who he is and and where Vladik's background comes from. And and this particular uh, set of panels, um, Artie, come to hold this a minute while I saw, and uh, Artie's sniffling. Uh, why do you cry, Artie? Hold better on the wood. <laughs> I I fell and my friends skated away. Well, without me, he stopped sawing. Friends? Your friends? If you lock them together in a room with no food for a week, then you could see what it is. Friends. And I think that just really sets a tone just in the speech style of Vladik and um, the events to come in this book. Exactly. Yeah, uh, definitely Vladik's uh, speech, which you know it continues to be that kind of that that kind of speech throughout, uh, and again the tone and and almost certainly foreshadowing a dark event involving some friends and uh, an absence of food, which brings us to the first. Um, there's like a page dedicated to each chapter beginning, and uh, the first one is. Well, before that, actually, I guess it'd be like a subtitle to the book. It's My Father Bleeds History. That's Yeah, so that's the title of this first volume. The right? first there volume. There are two volumes, ah. and we're reading the first half of the first volume. And that's My Father Bleeds History, mid-1930s to the winter of 1944. Very cool. And I just, I love that title so much. Uh, it's so evocative of this idea that his father had seen so much, had lived through so much, literal history during the war that it is in his blood. Agreed. I mean, to grow up and 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 to have the perseverance to survive all of these events, to be able to tell these stories is pretty wild. So the book, uh, the first chapter, so the first chapter of the book is called The Sheik, which refers to uh, Art Spiegelman's father, Vladek, um, as he was known as a bit of a ladies' man, right, Todd? Yeah, for sure. So um, this chapter opens on uh, Art as an adult uh, going to Vladik's home, uh, where Vladik is with a woman named Mala, his wife, uh, who is not Art Spiegelman's mother, uh, Anya. And so he asks uh, the story to his father, Vladik, of meeting Anya. And of course, it doesn't begin with meeting Anya. There are women before Anya, as as Vladik uh, explains. And that's why he was kind of this ladies' man called the Sheik. Um, I just, uh, I once again, I just, I just love the writing in this whole thing. Um, uh, after dinner, he took me into my old room. Come, we'll talk while I pedal. It's good for my heart, the pedaling. But tell me, how is it by you? How is going the comics business? I still want to draw that book about you, uh, Art says. The one I used to talk to you about. About your life in Poland and the war. Uh, and I really love this next panel. Uh, it's Vladek on the exercise bike, and you can kind of just see like his torso and, the, and his forearms and half of a number, uh, a long list of numbers is visible right. on his left forearm, uh, which would have been his con concentration camp tattoo. And it's just kind of like hinted at, at as half visible in that panel as he says, it would take many books, my life, and no one wants any way to hear such stories. And I, I, uh, I just think that's uh, just beautiful. 
There's something really brilliant about it. It's building, it's drawing me in. There's an intrigue to it. I want to know Vladik's story now as well. So he begins to tell the story of, um, and of course he was wrong about people not wanting to hear that story. Um, of course, people around the world are reading it uh, quite a lot right now. Right. Um, and so he begins telling the story of his relationship with a, a woman named Lucia Greenberg. Um, she's not really someone that Vladek wants to settle down with, um, but he's been dating her for a while and and kind of trying to, I don't know if he's like trying to get, you know, get rid of her at this point, but he's pretty non-committal about the relationship and she does seem like she maybe wants a little bit more. Um, but when he travels back home to visit his family, he's introduced to Anya, who is uh, less attractive than Lucia, but is is a is a kinder person maybe is a warmer person and sort of wins Vladik's heart. This once again, uh, some of the panels here really speak to that open, honest harshness um, that Vladik uses in his speech. You know, we saw it even back in that first scene where his his son is crying, but he's still more concerned about him holding the wood properly. And it's right. It's <laughs> it's the harshness of reality. It's the it's the natural harshness that would come out of the personal experience of having to go through concentration camps, you know. And I just think it's I, I really love it, and it and it's shown throughout the writing. And so, speaking about uh, Lucia, um, this first kind of romantic interest, uh, we saw each other together for maybe three or four years, and it's a a, a panel of her on the bed with him. Let's get engaged, Fladdock. It's late. I'll take you home, he says. Not yet, please. Come on, your parents would worry. And then there's a caption at the bottom of the second panel. It says, her family was nice, but had no money, even for a dowry. And it's just, there's just a matter-of-fact style to the speech that's... Mm -hmm. I, I know, I love it. I think there's something really special about this Vladek character. And it's, I think that art does a really great job of communicating that person just through some simple words. I think too, if you uh, if you suggest to the person that you're seeing that that you get engaged, and they just kind of dodge the conversation endlessly, um, probably not going to happen. Right? Yeah, that's a good sign. So he starts seeing Anya, and uh, you know tells Lucia that it's sort of over between them. But Lucia does not want to let go easily, and goes so far as to write an anonymous letter to Anya, claiming that Vladik had been kind of sleeping around uh, with all these women, uh, which um, kind of breaks her heart. Uh, Vladek gives her a call one day, and she refuses to take the call over this letter. So Vladek has to get on the train, ride back to where she lives to explain the situation. He manages to convince her that it's all you know a misunderstanding by this ex-girlfriend who's jealous. And so uh, they eventually, not long after that, move to a place I believe is pronounced... Sosnoviec, uh, and they're married in 1937. And that's the end of chapter one. That's right, which brings us to uh, chapter two, The Honeymoon. Um, the graphic for The Honeymoon is five mice staring up at a large uh, swastika flag hanging over a town square. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just a sense of dread to it that gets uh, mentioned further throughout this chapter. Which is, again, it's a pretty 
dark image for a chapter that's called the honeymoon. Like the honeymoon is supposed to be, you know, this positive, uplifting, loveful, love-filled event, and that's not what that image is of at all. No. Early on in this chapter, Vladik discovers that Yanya has been working with communists in her town and helping to um, translate. Translate. Um, so, yeah, Enya gets uh, words that uh, the cops are coming and gave some documents that she was holding on to to a neighboring business owner. Um, that owner was caught with the documents and ended up in prison for three months. And then uh, the neighbor was paid for her time in prison, uh, prison by Anya's family afterwards. Mm-hmm. Which I guess we didn't mention that Anya's family, unlike um, Lucia's, they are quite wealthy. Um, and that's relevant too because Anya's father ends up helping Vladek open a textile factory. That's right. Originally, Vladek was just thinking, I'll open a textile shop. And the father was like, yeah, just a shop. We'll, we'll buy a whole factory. And this, uh, this whole incident also brings the Polish into the story for the first time, which means there are a pair of cops uh, interrogating this small business owner that uh, Anya had given these documents to, and it's a pair of pigs standing there interrogating a mouse. Yeah, and I am somewhat inclined to think that the choice to make the Poles pigs was based at least somewhat on the fact that their first appearance was as police. Police and pig... It's a pretty common, uh, like, visual connection. Totally. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not aware myself of any kind of connection between, uh, say, Polish people and pigs. Unlike, say, like, uh, English is fish, just because English and fish and chips. You've got French as frogs. French are frequently called frogs. Um, was it Americans or horses, I think? Or is it dogs? I know the Germans are cats. Which makes sense as they're hunting the mice. The only one that seems like it could be perceived as a bit negative are the pigs. And again, I suspect it's just because they were police and that was the first thought there. So uh, this leads um, to the birth of their first child between Anya and Vladik. Uh, their first son, uh, Regio, is what we decided on. Now this is quite interesting because... Um, it, it's mentioned that uh, that Art Spiegelman doesn't know this brother um, as he didn't come yeah. out from the war, is the phrasing. He didn't come out from the war. And so he'd only ever heard his brother's name spoken in conversation. So it turns out that in this graphic novel, his brother's name, Riju, is that what we decided on a pr- pronunciation? I'm, I'm double checking the way it's spelt on Wikipedia. Yeah. I was going with Rishu last time, yeah, but that's so, based on the spelling in the book. The graphic novel spells it R I C H I E U, but it turns out it was actually spelled R Y S I O. Rishu. And so. Rishu or Rishu. Yeah, so we're I, a little I feel like a, a softer, like a shush, works better with the way that Spiegelman uh, spelled it. I almost think that, like, Rishu. Spiegelman's spelling is basically, it's a phonetic spelling. Yeah. It's the way he guessed it would exactly. be. Exactly. Right? But so. that's wild that he'd never seen his own brother's name in writing because his mm-hmm. brother didn't survive the war. And I guess it just wouldn't be the kind of thing that might be really openly discussed. Clearly, it wasn't openly discussed if he. Wrote it into the comic without getting confirmation of the spelling. 
It is, you know, looking back on it and 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 being, you know, a journalist, it is odd that you wouldn't try to confirm the spelling. Um, I think that speaks to how it's probably a sensitive topic that is doesn't get yeah. mentioned oh, frequently. That's, that's a very, very good right? point. Yeah. It's just not something that can easily be spoken about. And as you get a sense of who Vladek is through the, the language and writing, I can understand that. I can see mm-hmm. that that being a, fi- a family dynamic. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the phrasing used is, he didn't come out from the war. And... Uh, yeah, pretty ominous. I imagine we'll find out more about what that means in, in pages to come. Um, after Rishu's birth, Anya is, uh, is struck with depression. It's probably, probably postpartum depression. And so they travel. Um, Anya's father offers to like make sure that the factory is taken care of so that he can go with Anya to a sanitarium in Czechoslovakia. And while they're on the train there, they pass by a city where that Nazi flag is being flown. It's that image we had from the title page of chapter two. And I think the train stops there briefly, and and the the four or five mice that are sitting there get this chance to look out the window at this image where they've they've heard about the Nazi party, they've heard about the the rise of, of this sort of movement, but no one had ever encountered a flag in person before, and it's a bit shocking to them. Yeah, there's a panel of these five mice looking out the train window, and it says, uh, it was the beginning of 1938, before the war. Hanging high in the center of town, it was a Nazi flag. Here was the first time I saw, with my own eyes, the swastika. And what a powerful idea and image that is. To be a Jew in Poland... And to they they say your word coming from Germany of Jews being forced to sell their businesses and were disappearing or being beaten, and and you know you hear these stories and we're not in our modern world with the you know twenty four hour news cycle, and uh, all of a sudden here is that physical proof of this this entity this this hatred um, that's spreading and is is targeting Jews and it's just so powerful to me. Uh, they end up making it to the sanitarium where they stay for three months. When they return home, they find out that Vladik's factory had been robbed. Though when Art asks about whether or not his dad suspects that it was like Targeted. anti-Jew. Yeah. yeah. Um, he just thinks it was just a standard robbery, which probably again, was. Is, is an, an interesting aside that like it would be very easy to just jump to that conclusion but you know uh, Vladek seems to be you know in spite of everything that he's been through a reasonable person about these things too like even looking back on it you, you know he's not filled with like it must have been anti-semitic it was like no nah, it's just a robbery and that makes sense in that time period if you know Resources are getting more finite, and you're hearing of what is to come, oh, yeah. and these borders, and other countries, and the the disarray. I think that there'd be some pandemonium, some panic, and some looting uh, as part of that for sure. So, um, yeah, quite interesting. Uh, a date that uh, would not uh, be forgotten uh, by Vladik, August twenty fourth, nineteen thirty nine. He is drafted uh, because he was a Polish reserve. Um, he he was part of the Polish army and was in the reserves uh, from being drafted when he was younger. Mm-hmm. 
Which brings us to the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three called Prisoner of War. And we once again have a, uh, a present day moment where Artie has gone to visit Vladek um, before interviewing him for some more, you know, more of the story. They're having dinner. Vladek insists that, uh, or, uh, you know, Vladek, we learned that Vladek used to insist that Artie eat all of the food on his plate, uh, and going so far as to save the plate and the food for later meals until he actually choked it all down finally. <laughs> I absolutely love this. Uh, you know, it really made me laugh out loud. I had similar rules in the house I grew up in, and it's this like leftover Great Depression logic of finishing all the yeah. food on your plate. And, uh, it just made me laugh out loud because, yes, there were similar rules in my home. I remember watching my brother sit there as a plate of food got colder and colder and refusing to eat it. Well, and I just... Exactly. And I remember <sighs> when I was a kid, you know, you'd hear the, like, there are kids starving in Africa right now. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Like, yeah, make, package we it up all and get send obese? it to them? Like, yeah. <laughs> so we all get obese <laughs> because there's kids starving in Africa. What are we doing? <laughs> but I know there was a time in history where there wasn't enough food to go around, right? And we're all living oh, on yeah. potatoes or whatever. And we're not there anymore <laughs> that's why we have things like head cheese yeah, yeah it's just like you know like do i really need to have every last bite of that tuna helper you made because there's kids in africa starving i don't quite get it when we go back in time it's uh, it's 1939 and and vladek um is he's in a trench he's not really shooting at the Germans. He's he kind of knows. He's been kind of trained because as a as a reservist, he did have to go into uh, what was it training every couple of years, something like that. Yeah, there was regular training. Um, I, I found it all quite interesting. I mean, f first of all, Vladik says that there was army training for a few days, and by September they were on the front line. Now he was drafted on August twenty fourth. And by September, they were on the front line. So they had literally yeah. days of training, and they were already, boom, gun in hand, shooting Nazis. Um, and this is— But as a reservist, though, as yes. a reservist, he, was, he said that he did get some training over the years. Yeah, so every couple of years, not, there was a little bit of training. Yeah. yeah. But still, kind of wild to go from, like, getting a letter in the mail to, like, shooting dudes and within a week— it says something about the immediacy and urgency of needing mm -hmm. to to um, respond to whatever kind of military push was happening on the other side. Um, Vladek tells this really interesting story uh, that his father uh, tried to make him and his brother avoid conscription right. through diet. So the conscription happened when you like turned 18 or whatever in Poland, and they tried to avoid the conscription, and so his father would uh, starve him and his brother. Um, three months before the examination, he started with me. And this is now cuts back. Wake up, Vladek, you're sleeping too much. Only three hours a night? Stop, Vladek, you mustn't eat so much. But I'm hungry. Okay, have one more herring. It was all pickled herring. <laughs> For three months, I ate only salted herring and no water to lose weight. After a few days before the exam, no sleep and no food. Good boy, just a little more coffee. Only a gallon coffee a day for my heart. <laughs> uh, and when finally I went for my medal examination, here's a healthy one, says the Polish pig. Hmm. No, there seems to be something wrong with him, says the doctor. Build yourself up for a year, young man, and we'll review your case again. Uh, so the next year, Father wanted I would again do the same thing, but I begged him and went in 1922 to the army. 
So there you go. Yeah, that's quite a regiment that you had to go through there. I'm not surprised you didn't want to do it a second time. Still, like, smart (laughs) dad. This is how to keep your children from having to shoot guns and get into the army. So, um, yeah, even worse than shooting guns is, you know, being shot. So, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that meant that uh, Vladek did end up in the army, did end up in the front lines in a trench. You know, he's looking out from the trench and, uh, not really shooting, and then uh, I think another uh, soldier is up and you know harassing him for not shooting. So then he starts kind of shooting erratically at nothing at all. Um, he does notice, I think, a, 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 was it a tree moving? Yeah, some sort of um, a tree started moving. Yeah, and so thinking that was somebody in some kind of uh, camouflage, he takes shots at the the tree. I think the tree reacts. Yeah, I don't know if it. If falls it falls down. immediately. Yeah, it falls down, and he knows he's killed somebody. He's not sure if yeah. it's a good guy or a bad guy, but he knows that his he definitely connected with something out there in the in the bushes. Uh, but eventually, he is captured by the Germans. Cats. They are uh, yeah, cats. Mean, um, mean looking the, cats. The, the, the captured soldiers are at first used to sort of like round up the dead. And uh, and it's there that Vladek confirms that the person he shot um, is dead because he he does find that body. He's able to retrieve it because he knows where it fell. What's what's wild to me is uh, the Red Cross is there. The Red Cross is there collecting and helping German soldiers because it's a, a you know part of their mandate is this universality and not to take sides. And so it's. It's kind of crazy to think that that means you sometimes would be on the wrong side of a war, mending its people because there's still people. I get that, but uh, it's they just, are, yeah. It's, it's it's again, this is that whole boy, weirdness of it's how tricky. <laughs> you know there are there are rules to war. There's things that you're not allowed to do in war, which is the first time I learned that. It was like, how does this make sense? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it seems so bizarre that like. We're going to shoot each other. We're going to kill each other. But we have to do it in the proper way yeah. so as to not be too mean to each other. I know. It's a little bizarre, but I'm, you know? I'm glad we can't mustard gas each other. That stuff sounds nasty. I agree. I agree. Um, but <laughs> I'm, not, is, I'm not calling for that. No. I mean, it is just interesting that, you know, only in hindsight can you be like, okay, well, like, the, I mean, maybe not in hindsight. Duh. The Nazis were evil. But uh, just the fact that, you know, the Red Cross doesn't uh, make those calls. They just help where help is needed, regardless of yeah. what's behind it. But that's again the thing is like I think you've got to make sure that you have, um, you know, medical um, access for your prisoners of war. You have to make sure that they're taken care of, which is something that um, the Germans didn't do a great job of necessarily. But. <laughs> Jeez, Louise, huh? Um, so <laughs> at some point uh, they all end up in a POW camp, and things are rough there. They are um, they're cold. They're not getting a lot of food. Um, someone notices that the Polish prisoners are being treated better than they are. That um, the Polish prisoners have heated tents and get two meals a day, while the Jewish prisoners only get bread and a little bit of soup, and their tents are not heated. They're they're freezing cold. Um, they're dirty. At one point, um, someone jumped into jumps into a freezing river to to wash themselves. So this is um, Vladik specifically. So people weren't. But is it Vladik? I wasn't sure. Yeah, Vladik specifically chose to bathe in the river in the fall, and this is their words: so cold, birds dropped from trees. Um, mm-hmm. 
And then there's a great line about that time. It's just, many others got frostbite wounds. In the wounds was pus, and in the pus was lice. Nasty. Nasty. Not a good time. Um, They did try to keep themselves busy in any ways they could, so they played chess with rocks and breadcrumbs. A few other things about that time, that POW camp. Uh, And one time a week, we could write letters through the International Red Cross, only in German (laughs) and very careful. And through this, it came a package uh, with chocolate bars, cigarettes, and jam. It was so treasuring for me, this package. Uh, I had a sign my family was safe, and because I never smoked, I had cigarettes to trade for food. And so things went Mm -hmm. for maybe six weeks, and then a notice was put up looking for workers. Yeah. And first, most of the the prisoners don't really want to go and do the work, but Vladek is like, you know what? I'm not going to die here, like shivering in this tent. Uh, I'm going to go do this work. It's you know maybe there'll be there'll be a benefit long term to it. Yeah. So one of the prisoners uh, says, "If we have to die, let's die here." And Vladek says, "No." He says, "I didn't agree. I'm not going to die, and I won't die here. I want to be treated like a human being." And uh, he says, "When my comrades saw I was going, they too registered." And so they find out that where they're going to be working, they have access to a warm bed. They have access to better food to eat. Uh, But he does say that the work was difficult. They're basically trying to um, flatten out some hills and valleys. So they're taking dirt from one area and they're moving it into another area just to kind of flatten it out, presumably for roads or, you know, travel for vehicles during wartime. The next day we were given shovels and picks things that we never held in our hands before. One night, Vladek dreams of his grandfather coming to him and telling him that he will be freed on Parshus Truma, which um, is is apparently a certain date uh, of the daily reading of the Torah. The daily reading was the Parsha, right? Was the Parsha, yeah. So the Parsha was the daily, and then one week each year, it is Parshus Truma. So he later finds out, he asks, there's a rabbi in the camp with them. And he asks, when is the Parsha Struma? And the rabbi says that it's three months away in February. And it turns out that he is, in fact, released from the camp on Parsha Struma. They're working that day. Um, the soldiers come in in uh, jeeps. They set up a little, you know, a couple of tables and paperwork. And uh, everyone's lined up and asked who they are. And he's told that he can leave. Yeah, I I find this interesting. Uh, This the Germans did very good. Always they did everything very systematic. And it was all done in one day. German efficiency. I mean, what is is that saying? That, you know, at least the trains ran on time under Hitler. Yeah, that's right. Interestingly, too, that uh, Vladek would later look back and realize that there were other significant moments of his life that had fallen on or near Parshas Truma, including uh, the week he got married and the week that Art was born. Now, instead of being returned directly home, so they were they were all loaded onto a train, and the train ended up traveling past um, Vladek's home and moving further to the north where they were held in a camp again. 
Uh, and it had something to do, it was connected to the, the separation of, of Poland into the Protectorate and the Reich. Yeah, uh, the Nazis divided Poland into pieces, Protectorate and Reich, with a guarded border between. The train went completely past my part of Poland, the Reich, and stopped only in the Protectorate. And uh, when it stopped in Warsaw, the rabbi got out. That was someone he'd gotten to know throughout this time. And the train was a long way past uh, another place. They took me up, up very far, maybe 300 miles, until we came to Lublin. There they unloaded all of us from the Reich. Mm -hmm. And took us to big tents. And while they're in that camp, um, some Jewish authorities come to the camp to, to check on them. And they tell them that they've gotten word that another group of quote-unquote released soldiers or released, yeah, prisoners had been marched into the woods and shot, um, 600 of them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but they are told that if they have family in the area, they can be released to those family members. And since Vladek, uh, and not just family, like they're encouraged to, if you have any friends or acquaintances in this area, see if you can pass them off as family so you can get out and, and go and stay with them. And Vladek has a family friend in Lublin named Orbach who uh, he reaches out to and manages to, I think he's you know claimed to be a cousin or something like that. So Vladek is released to Orbach. Um. There, uh, to show his gratitude, he gifts Orbach's, I believe, daughters with some of the chocolate that he has left over from uh, the package he got from his family. And then uh, this is where he pretends to be a Pole in order to get on a train from the Reich, uh, or sorry, from the Protectorate to the Reich, yeah. which is where... His home is trying to get back to Anya. Um, there's a couple yeah. really, I think, intentional panel, an intentional panel as part of that last part. Um, when the mm -hmm. uh, the the pair of uh, Jewish authorities comes to warn them that 600 people were killed the, the day before from another group, um, there's a shot of this forest and a bunch of mice lined up on their knees oh, yeah. above a trench with more mice in the trench and the, the German soldiers standing around, many of them with guns to the backs of their heads and other ones drinking. And for one, this uh, art style and the fact that it's not super just depictive um, allows this pretty nasty scene to be quite tolerable. You know, like there's no like real blood and guts. Like there's a sense that there's a trench there and things in the trench, but it's not... It's not as shocking or, or disturbing as it could be if it was depicted more clearly. And and I think the really important thing from that panel to me is that none of those German soldiers look like cats. Um, they all have proper human features in that one panel. And I think that was a very intentional choice to show that, you know, it's not cats that performed these atrocities. It was men. Right. And I think that there right. was an intentional choice on art's part to depict the Germans as humans in that panel to show that it's humans that that performed these atrocities. At the end of that chapter, Vladek does end up reunited with Anya. He uh, gets to see his, uh, his son, um, but there is finally a reunion of the family. And I think that's pretty much how that part of the story ends. And then we return to present day where uh, yes. Art is, you know, Vladek is telling this story to Art and it's time for Art to go home. And 
Art goes to go home and he can't find his jacket anywhere. <laughs> so he asks uh, his his father's wife if she knows where it is. And uh, eventually his father comes into the room and is like, oh, I threw it away. Yeah, when you were first... Much a new one. When you were sitting first down to dinner, I threw it outside. By now the garbage men took it away. Such an old shabby coat. It's a shame my son would wear such a coat. But I like it, he says. I have for you a warmer one. I got it at Alexander's, a new jacket, and I can give you my old one. It's still like new. Here, just try it on a minute. Oh, great. A Naga Hide windbreaker. And it's too big. Ah, oh, it looks on you like a million dollars. Look, Dad, you can't do this to me. I'm over 30 years old. I choose my own clothes. After you wear it a little, you'll see how good it looks. Come, I'll walk you downstairs. So don't forget, Artie. We'll call me next week and we can talk. You really threw my coat? I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Yeah, he even goes and looks in the garbage. Yeah. Just like, Jesus Christ, Dad. <laughs> it's just, oh, boy. That is something else, Which, again, man. is why, you know, why at the beginning I said this isn't just the story of Art's father's experiences in the war. It's very much a story of Art's relationship with his father and and how that relationship is has led to him telling his father's story. But, like, the relationship, I think, at least so far, is proving to be as big a part of the story as his father's history with the Holocaust is. Yeah. I mean, it's um, impactful is maybe the word. I mean, those five mice looking out the train window and seeing that Nazi flag hanging over, um, there's something really special to that depiction that resonated with me. Um, in a way that like, you know, I've, you know, I've seen the Saving Private Ryans out there and stuff. So it was nice to see kind of a different take on the, those events and, um, a different way to kind of connect emotionally with what it would have been like in that time to go through that. Um, so I really appreciate this graphic novel so far, no reason to have it banned, but I believe all that's really going to come in in the second half when more races get involved and we're really going to see the depiction of all those races different from each other. Uh, along with, I think, some of the grosser atrocities of the war that we haven't gotten to yet. This uh, story is going to get worse. I know that to be the case. We haven't yet got back around to uh, Art's uh, older brother, who uh, did not come out of the war, or Anya, shall, his yeah. mother, who uh, mm-hmm. also is no longer alive. And so I'm, I'm very curious to see where the story goes in the back half. Um, I have not read this graphic novel before, unlike Todd Sullivan, who has. So I'm completely unaware of where the story... I mean, I have a, a sense of where it's going, but I've never read it before, and uh, I'm very excited yeah, it's curious. been a very, very long time since I read it. Um, so, I mean, I'm basically coming at this almost like, uh, you know, I'm reading it for the first time. I don't remember hardly any of it. I will say, you might be surprised about why it was actually banned. The, the board cited its reasons as rough language and unnecessary profanity, specifically eight words, including damn, and a small drawing of a nude woman drawn as a mouse. Right, and and none of that's in the first half. As well as mentions of murder, violence, and suicide, which uh, they considered not age-appropriate. But it just seems, given the, the, the importance of the story and how dark some of the material is, is going to be, 
The fact that they got worked up about the word damn and a, a, a drawing of a, you know, a nude woman slash mouse just seems like, really? Really? I mean, lots of ways to depict an, a nude woman. Now, in my mind, what it's going to look like is pretty tasteful. Uh, I doubt it's going to be Hustler magazine. <laughs> no, like if I had to guess, I imagine it's probably... You know, somebody being brought into a concentration camp and being, ah. you know, either forced into a shower to clean off before they're being given their uh, their prisoner outfit, or even you know, being forced into the shower to be um, killed. But I think it's it's probably in that context where it's not exactly it's not Hustler magazine, it's no. not a hubba hubba, it's just this 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 person who happens to be nude, and uh, well, and that's that. We'll but find out in the back half we'll and back let you we will. And, uh, tell you all about it in the next episode. Absolutely. Um, before we end things off, do you want to plug anything? You want to share where people can find your stuff? Sure. Todd and I have another podcast called Mysteries and Madness. There are 16 episodes out. Each is around 45 minutes to an hour, and they are... Uh, Detective stories. Uh, uh, Todd plays a detective, Jack Shepard, solving cases in 1940s Los Angeles. They're also 50s. supernatural yeah. detective cases. Supernatural though. detective cases in 1950s Los Angeles. It's full of dice rolls and all sorts of good stuff. And uh, I spend uh, an insane amount of time adding sound effects and uh, soundtrack to it to make it sound like an old radio drama. And I'm damn proud of it. And it's called Mysteries and Madness. And it's on every podcatcher out there. Yeah, and the yeah, the amount of the amount of effort that Dave puts into it is insane. But you can you can hear it all. You can hear it. The the audio engineering is honestly unlike anything that I've heard anywhere. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. I'm lucky I'm lucky to be on there because I, I have the easiest job. I just show up and I roll some dice and I make some bad decisions and and then Dave goes and does all the hard work for the next, you know, couple of weeks. Yeah, weeks of time. 30, 40 hours an episode. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you can find uh, my other podcast as well as this podcast at blah, 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 media.com. That's B-L-A-H, B-L-A-H, media.com. You can also find a link there to um, my Patreon if you want to support the podcast. Uh, buy me a coffee if you want to just buy us coffee. Uh, as well as a link to our merch store where you can get some cool merch. Including a Garita fucking book hat, which I just got my it looks hands good. on one of them. It looks really good. Pretty happy with it. Yeah, it's a spiffy looking it's hat. Dope. So you can you can go tell your friends to go read a fucking book, and if you have kids, you can. I believe we have some kid friendly merchandise that says "Go read a freaking book," in case that's more your style. <laughs> I don't know if damn gets a book band. <laughs> I guess it does. Okay. That's true. That's true. I really wanted to go because I've got go read a fucking book throw pillows. I wanted to go buy a couple of those and sneak them into the local library. That's a brilliant idea. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks when we reconvene to discuss the second half of Mouse, My Father Bleeds History. Until then, I've been Todd Sullivan. I'm Dave Coleman. Go read a fucking book. <laughs>